Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. My name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am the Churro King, and joining me this fine National Pastry Day is the croissant connoisseur himself, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the Rundown. Thank you very much. Nothing beats fresh Pillsbury Crescent Rolls. I'm sorry for all of those out there that we thought we were talking about other croissants. We are American. If it doesn't come out of a box, we don't eat it. Um, it's been an exciting week. Uh, there's been a little bit of Christmas shopping going on with some of the companies that we follow here on the rundown, and we're going to break it all down for you. And, and along with, you know, some of the ongoing news coming from that little bookstore that, that seems to be running the cloud right now. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, as always, we like to start off with our favorite segment, News or Nah. These are some stories that, you know, may have come out in some of our research, and we just kind of wanted to get a feel for, is this something you really should be paying attention to? Um, and I'm going to start off with a great story that's coming not from Amazon, strangely enough, but from Google. Uh, they did do a little bit of their own holiday shopping last week. Uh, they are buying Actifio. Uh, they're trying to add a little bit of uh, Actifio's data continuity uh, product line to the Google Cloud. Um, they are a former Tech Field Day presenter, and we were very happy to have a look at some of their technology a while back. Um, they're going to be adding some backup and disaster recovery options to the users of Google Cloud but also helping Google kind of move down into that on-premises enterprise that there uh, is suddenly the gold mine for a lot of the cloud companies to be involved in. Now, of course, as always, the financial deals of this term were not disclosed because when you're a company as big as Google, it's going to take something pretty big to make a dent in your uh, 10K so they didn't have to file for how much they purchased it at. Um, now, Stephen, Actifio's had a bit of an up and down year in 2020. Uh, and so this pickup by Google is probably one of the best ways to end it, I would think, in my opinion. Now, is this news to you? Is this something that should be exciting to the community out there? Well, it should be exciting from a perspective of the technology because Actifio has always had strong technology. Um, you know, this is a company that really understands the enterprise space and really understands the needs of uh, data protection and secondary storage in the enterprise. So not to sound too much like an ad, but Actifio is good stuff. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, I've actually known the guys for many years. I used to work with them at Storage Networks uh, 20 years ago. And so I, I was briefed on Actifio even before there was an Actifio um, and said, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. The problem is that they've had a little trouble going to market with it. And, um, you know, this is a company that was a unicorn, um, but then really ticked everybody off with some weird um, stock shenanigans this year, everybody inside the company, at least that's what I'm hearing. Um, you know, and, and I think that uh, that was a demonstration, not of the fact that they're terrible people, but of the fact that they were just in terrible financial straits. Um, and so I think that uh, the, the challenge for them was basically to figure out a good exit that preserves the, you know, their current company or current customers. And um, frankly, Google's a good one. Um, I'm not sad that, um, you know, that this is how it went. Um, I am sad for the folks who didn't get what they wanted out of the, uh, you know, their, their insider shares and all that kind of stuff. But frankly, um, you know, you win some, you lose some, you know, same, same story with storage networks, frankly. So it, it is good. Uh, you know, this shows, I think, Google's commitment to the enterprise and the fact that they've just purchased basically a company that is um, almost as blue as IBM in terms of, you know, serving the needs of enterprise customers. Um, I think that's good for Google. I think it's good for the marketplace. 
Yeah. And uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about Actifio's uh, product and platform, we'll make sure to link to their videos that they did at Techfield Day in our show notes. Yeah, absolutely. You can find out a lot more there. So, Tom, uh, Cloudflare is being sneaky uh, in a good way. Uh, Cloudflare, by the way, is a great company that uh, we actually run all of our services through. Uh, they recently announced that uh, along with some engineers at Apple, they've developed a new protocol designed to shield your web surfing habits from internet providers. Um, oblivious DNS over HTTPS or ODO for short. I, I don't think that's exactly what it is, but that's what I'm gonna call it. Um, builds on the encryption technology of DNS over HTTPS by decoupling the name lookup from the uh, person making the lookup. The hope is that this will prevent uh, providers from scanning you and figuring out which sites you're visiting and building a profile about you. It also has uh, far-reaching implications for the government monitoring and uh, you know, sort of uh, that sort of surveillance. Um, Cloudflare is making DNS oblivious. Tom, news or not? I think this is news for two reasons. One, the biggest problem that we've had with DNS over HTTPS, which was the initial idea of encrypting a DNS lookup so that nobody knew what you were looking for, because those are all transmitted in plain text normally, is you can still see who's sending it. So if you enable DNS over HTTPS, I may not know what you're sending, but I know you're up to something. So I'm just going to maybe block you or force you to use something else. With uh, oblivious DNS over HTTPS, which I love the the oblivious. When I saw the name, I, I actually did a double take that they named it this. Um, they're decoupling that request. So they can't tie you back to the request. And if you've ever typed the wrong address into your web browser and you've gotten like that Comcast or Spectrum pop-up that's like, hey, you could register this domain or did you really mean to look for this? They're building a profile on you so that they know what to sell you and what ads to put in front of you and things like that. Uh, the problem is DNS over HTTPS never really has taken off because well, Google really hasn't embraced it. Firefox has, so if you're a Firefox user, way to go. I think that with Cloudflare pushing this from their end and Apple kind of being on board with it, which telegraphs that we'll probably see it in Safari coming up pretty soon, I feel like this is news because it's going to close another avenue for people to exploit your privacy. And anything that can do that is good in my book. Right on. And uh, yeah, and I'm not surprised that Apple's the company that's helping them. I'm not surprised that Cloudflare is doing this, frankly. Like I said, I'm very impressed by that company. Very impressed by their products. Um, you know, I'm an avid user of them, and, and I love this. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I'm going to call it "Oh duh," because I think that that works too. I, I'm. It's definitely "Oh duh." Yeah, that is now the accepted pronunciation. So, way to go, Stephen. Um, we're going to turn to a storage story here because it looks like OpenZFS is finally one big happy family. Last week, uh, Brian Bendorf published the OpenZFS 2.0 specification to GitHub. Among the list of new features that was listed there was a note that the protocol is now the same on Linux and FreeBSD. Now this unification ends the distinction between the two code bases because there was a time when it was called ZFS on Linux and ZFS on FreeBSD and ne'er the twain shall meet. Um, it does help ensure that features that are published to one code base are immediately replicated to the other because now they're the same code base. Um, and it does bode well for people trying to keep up with the latest and greatest things. Now there's a lot of other great uh, features that are listed there and we'll have a link to the GitHub page in the show notes. Um, if you're willing to go out and compile this brand new file system and run it on your favorite distribution of choice, feel free, let us know how it works. But um, Steven, you're the file system expert here and you've had a lot to do with a lot of the ZFS stuff that's going on out there on the internet for a while. Is this release and the unification of FreeBSD and Linux news? Um, I'm really, really excited about this. Um, I know I get excited about storage. Uh, 
But no, truly, this is actually exciting, and it's actually good news for Linux users specifically. So, I mean, basically, what happened was for the longest time, you know, uh, Linux sort of rejected uh, ZFS or ZFS. Um, and so there's been a bunch of projects to develop sort of ZFS-like things out there. Um, you know, one of the most recent was ButterFS, which, uh, you know, was a really nice file system with a lot of great features that kind of didn't work. And, um, you know, you kind of want your storage to work. Well, ZFS works. It works great. It is the, I don't know, cat's pajamas of storage systems. Um, it's not the coolest. It's not the, doesn't have the latest everything, but it just freaking works. But the problem was that the, the primary development, um, basically ZFS on Linux was always a, a fork of, of the, the quote, real ZFS out there. And um, this was a problem because, uh, you know, you were seeing developments on the Linux side that weren't getting backported into the alleged, you know, the main ZFS. And so um, what happened a couple of years ago was the uh, ZFS team just said, you know what, um, that guy over there, the Linux one, uh, well, we're going to take that and go the other way, kind of, and make a master ZFS. And, and they've done it. Um, so the real news about ZFS or OpenZFS 2.0 is not really the features. Now, it does have some cool new features, and some of them are moderately useful. Um, some of them are exceptionally useful in weird edge cases. But basically, the story here is that uh, you know ZFS has been reunified. Uh, hallelujah. We've got a good file system. Um, and not only that, but that this has come into Linux. And so instead of seeing a bunch of, um, you know, sort of hacky ways to get ZFS to work, I expect that Linux distributions uh, are going to start, you know, really going for it and integrating, um, you know, ZFS as a preferred file system going forward. And that's good news for your data. And it's good news for you. It's just good stuff. So um, turning uh, back to security, Tom, we just had word uh, that uh, FireEye confirmed that they've been hacked. Uh, the attackers are unknown at the time, but uh, FireEye has disclosed that some internal tools uh, used to test client defenses were taken in the breach. The malcontents also seem to be interested in a specific subset of FireEye's customers during the raid. They were looking for information about government agencies. Given the early stages of this attack, FireEye isn't saying much beyond the statements, and the FBI isn't commenting. But Tom, FireEye got blindsided here. Is this news or not? I think this is big news when you consider kind of who the clientele of FireEye are. Now, they didn't come right out and say it, but they're kind of hinting in a back channel that they think that this was the responsibility of a state actor, not uh, one of our favorite hacking crews that's out there. And given the fact that they were sniffing around the government agency customer list, that would kind of tend to lend a little bit of credence to that. Um, pour one out for the FireEye incident response team. We'll probably hear from them sometime around St. Patrick's Day. Uh, they are not going to have a happy holiday. Now, this is the other, you know, kind of the um, elephant in the room. Anytime anybody says something to any kind of a provider about, well, you know, you need to weaken your encryption to allow us to get access to the data or whatever. And, you know, companies like Apple keep pushing back going, no, because if we create that Pandora's box, we may not be the ones that open it up. When it comes to a security researching firm that does kind of, you know, these basically penetration attacks against their clientele, um, when someone goes into their toolbox and gets all of their tools, it's only a matter of time before we see those tools get morphed and released on the internet for anybody to use. And given what happened with the NSA and the CIA and, and where that's come from, 
I, I'm a little worried here. I hope that FireEye is able to find out who did it. I hope that the people that they're working with are able to take care of it. And I hope that this is a boring story in six months time and not, you know, starting a new round of security and penetration wildfires. Yeah. Yeah, it is a little bit concerning because these are some high profile tools. I mean, FireEye is, you know, I mean, for those of you who haven't heard, I mean, this this company is is one of the, you know, Cadillac companies in the space. And um, and absolutely, they're used by a lot of government agencies. And uh, it's it's a pretty big concern. Now, we'll see. Um, sometimes these hacks come to nothing. Sometimes uh, they're more smoke than fire. But uh, if there's fire there, there's some, there's some serious fire. Yeah. All right, well, that's just about do it for our news or NAW stories. I think we want to jump into our main stories for this week. Um, Stephen, why don't you take it away? All right, Tom. Uh, so there's nothing like getting yourself a gift, um, especially if it's a gift you always wanted. And this year, our friends over at Juniper Networks announced that they found a special startup under the tree. Abstra, uh, intent-based networking started startup Abstra has uh, was founded in 2014, and they've been building a networking platform that allows users to use policy to drive configuration and management of the network. This move will see the uh, team of the startup augmenting Juniper's automation of JunoS and including uh, increasing troubleshooting capabilities with features like uh, Time Voyager, not Time Machine. Uh, Tom, Juniper has spent most of 2020 beefing up their portfolio and buying company after company. How does Abstra fit in with them? So, first of all, big congrats to our friends at Abstra. I've known Monsur for a very long time. David Sheraton is kind of one of the seminal folks in Silicon Valley. So, if he founded a company, you can bet that, that he knows what he's talking about. This gives them big teeth in automation, which is something that they've really been pushing for a long time with a lot of the tools that they're working on. It also gives them a big leg up in the policy department. So intent-based networking is all about creating a declarative policy model for your network and telling the devices to automatically make what they're doing look like the policy. You're probably sitting here scratching your head thinking, wait, where have I heard this before? Well, if you use the other networking vendor stuff, that would be Cisco, and you have bought any equipment in the last six years, you've probably been pitched on their application-centric infrastructure, ACI. It's very similar. And so seeing Abster get picked up by Juniper is basically Juniper firing that warning shot across the Cisco battleship bow saying, we're coming for you. Abstra already had really great integration with the Juniper team. They were working hand in hand to build this out. This just means that Mike Bouchong is putting together the networking Voltron, and he's doing a great job when you look at the fact that they bought Mist last year, they bought NetRounds, 128 Technology, and Abstra this year. They are doing a lot of great stuff. And I've actually written quite a few stories about some of the integrations between Mist and Juniper uh, from some of the things we've seen this year. But when you think about the fact that they're picking up an SD-WAN company, an intent-based networking company, a network monitoring company, and an AI company, I'm kind of excited to see where this is going to go. Absolutely. And I'll form the head. <laughs> I, I mean, this is, uh, this is just great uh, to have. By the way, that was a Voltron reference for those of you who are under the age of 40. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We've been super impressed by Abstra over the years. Um, you know, they have been a tech, for, tech field day company uh, basically since the start. Uh, they've been coming back for, uh, you know, visit after visit and every single time, um, you know, they get, you know, glowing praise. Um, uh, the fact that, uh, as you say, that Juniper is putting together this, you know, really uh, grade A team is just, um, 
is pretty remarkable. Um, I'm sure the company is having to invest quite a lot in this, but uh, they're making some really, really good choices here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, bravo, uh, Juniper. Uh, and, and if you're interested and you want to learn more, I do recommend checking out some of the uh, Tech Field Day presentations. Just go to techfieldday.com or just Google Tech Field Day and Abstra and you'll find some great presentations and uh, be able to see what it is exactly that uh, Juniper has bought. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely want to check that out. Now, as, as everyone knows, it is week two of AWS reInvent, the gift that keeps on giving all through December. But we're going to go back and revisit one of the announcements that came out late last week, because it looks like AWS is trying to move down into the enterprise. Um, one of the things that they did announce kind of on the quiet is that they have decoupled the elastic block storage compute and storage stacks from each other. Um, now, why would you do such a thing? Well, it turns out you really want to do that because you want to scale them independently of each other. You maybe want to fire up some more computers, some more storage. Okay, no big deal. But they use that as the basis for something they're calling Elastic Block Storage Block Express, EBSBE, I guess. Um, they're calling it the first SAN that was built for the cloud. Now, a lot of the people in the storage research areas have been looking at the possibility that with all of the announcements that they made about AWS Outpost, which is all about running AWS in your on-premises data center, that they're going to start offering EBS Block Express specifically to compete with some of the enterprise SAN vendors that are out there. Um, Steven, What's your take on this news? Because I'm kind of curious if Amazon really is looking to compete with the likes of NetApp and EMC, especially given how many times they've announced all these big partnerships with them, or are they really looking at playing a completely different game when it comes to the decoupling of their, their compute and storage stacks and trying to push this down into the on-premises uh, side of things? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that, um, well, first, uh, you know, EBS Block Express looks pretty cool, but I would never call it the first <laughs> SAN built for the cloud. Um, no way, no how, uh-uh. Um, I mean, it's not first and it's kind of not a SAN. I mean, it's built for the cloud. Um, no, it's, it's fine. Um, it's good. I'm really glad they're doing this. I mean, essentially EBS was basically a virtual hard drive and um, with like no features, no capabilities, no data protection, no high availability, no nothing. I mean, it, theoretically it had an SLA around it, but um, oops, you know, I, I mean, it, it just wasn't much. And, uh, you know, Block Express is a little bit better, um, but I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, the main pitch for this thing is performance. Um, and, and I think that that shows that, uh, you know, that was an area that Amazon needed to address, um, even with the fact that they have SSD instances and so on. And, and it does perform. I mean, it's uh, all the reviews that I read have been, uh, you know, pretty glowing of it. Um, but to call it a SAN, I'm really just not sure. Um, you know, a SAN is a lot more than just a high performance, you know, RAID array. Um, you know, this thing to me looks a lot more like a, um, you know, the first RAID array built for the cloud or something. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not super, super excited about it. Also, I think that the, uh, the outpost uh, angle of it is interesting, but probably overblown. Uh, I don't blame you for bringing it up because frankly, that's what a lot of people are talking about. Um, I mean, outpost basically would bring, uh, you know, Amazon Web Services into your data center. Um, but the problem is that, um, you know, frankly, uh, this thing isn't going to be competitive with the SAN systems that you already have in any way, at least not right now. And, um, you know, I just don't, I just don't get it. 
I think that one thing that this hurts, frankly, is the fact that a lot of enterprise storage companies have been trying to move into the cloud. So you get companies like NetApp and Pure and Dell EMC and you know, HPE who are trying to create basically cloud versions of their actual SAN and NAS systems. And those have been moderately successful. Um, you know, this thing will certainly take a little bit of the shine off the idea of, oh, well, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna deploy a, a pure storage, you know, flash array in the cloud in order to, you know, get, you know, performance. But on the other hand, if you want features, if you want integration with your on-premises, you know, SAN, you're still gonna be using these things. So I'm gonna basically throw up not, that's not the right word. I'm, I'm raising a big uh, hold on here to all the people who are getting excited about this thing. It, it doesn't really give you the benefits that you kind of want for enterprise applications. Um, it's just a better EBS. Okay, I think that's pretty fair. And that's why we, you know, have great folks like you here on the rundown to be like, okay, here's this big announcement from Amazon. And here's why it may not be the biggest thing you're really caring about right now. Hey, Tom, you know, I should probably stop sharing your Netflix password. Did you know that's a federal crime? If you didn't know this, uh, well, you just found out. Um, the majority of people have never read the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986. Um, I have because I read boring legal stuff as a hobby, but maybe you haven't. Uh, this landmark law was the first uh, was first passed to prevent uh, unauthorized access to computer systems, but the interpretation has changed over the last 35 years, and security researchers are especially worried now that uh, broad implementation of the law has led to it being used to stifle legitimate research, um, such as the uh, votes election security debacle early this year. Um, the Supreme Court is currently looking at a case that involves the nuances of the law, and the initial leanings indicate that it will be narrowed to exclude abuse by companies looking to prevent research. Um, how did it take 35 years to look at this law, and what does this mean for the future of hacking? Man, nothing moves slower than government. So I, I just want to set the stage for everybody because you're probably thinking, wow, how can there be a computer uh, uh, abuse act that's that old? I kid you not, when this was brought up in the House committee, they referenced the movie War Games as being a realistic depiction of a computer hack. Matthew Broderick is almost 60. That's how old this is. Now, the problem is, is that when you write laws like this, you want to write them fairly broadly at the federal level because you want to be able to use them as a big giant sledgehammer when you can't get anything else to stick. Um, I guess suggest go following Pope Hat on Twitter because he always loves to say that this is not RICO, the Racketeering, Racketeer Influenced Crime Act. Basically, we use this to get you to plead to something else. CFAA is quite literally one of the most broad interpretations I've ever seen. If you access any system without authorization, you have violated CFAA and committed a federal felony. So yes, technically, if you want to take the interpretation, sharing your Netflix password is a violation. The votes thing that happened, security researchers at DEF CON got a hold of some of these blockchain voting things and took them apart and said, yeah, this is all crap. And votes threatened to invoke the CFAA because they didn't give these security researchers permission to do this. Okay, I get if you're going to use it against hackers that are trying to hack you and steal your tools, like the FireEye story from earlier, but these guys were trying to prove 
guys and gals were trying to prove that this is something that needs to be addressed. Now, here's the thing, though. Votes had nothing to do with the case that's before the Supreme Court right now. The case before the Supreme Court is actually a Georgia police officer who accessed the driver's license database in an unauthorized manner because the FBI was trying to run a sting on him. And what they're trying to argue in front of the Supreme Court is technically he did have authorization to access the database because he had access to it. He just wasn't supposed to be looking up that particular person. So we're really starting to split hairs here. But votes filed an amicus brief uh, in September basically saying, yeah, and if you guys uh, come down on the side of this act being way more lenient, we've got some things we want to talk to you about. Now, the good news is, is that the people on the Supreme Court, though they are venerable, also do look at this law and basically say, yeah, this is way too broad and we need to narrow the scope of this law a little bit. So granted, again, speed of the government, we're probably not going to hear anything about this until easily mid-2021. But based on the feedback that we're starting to get so far, I think the jurists on the court are going to narrow the definition of what constitutes an unauthorized access of a system. And I think that's going to be good for security researchers because the last thing we need is, you know, big companies going around and basically bullying the security community to not do research because they're like, well, you access the system on, in an unauthorized manner. Well, yeah, because you wouldn't give me permission to tell you that it was broken in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And things like this, I mean, the CFAA has been sort of a thorn in the side of um, – <laughs> the good kind of hackers for a long, long time as well. Because, you know, I mean, if whether you're somebody who's trying to, you know, keep uh, ancient video games or computer systems running, or whether you're somebody who's trying to, like you said, you know, find and report exploits, uh, you know, that, that, that somebody else could be exploiting, um, you know, you want to have some protection that you're not going to be charged with a federal crime for basically doing, you know, scientific or technical research or for preserving things. Um, and frankly, um, you know, I mean, nobody's going to sue me from Atari for, you know, trying to crack the password on my old 800XL. But at the same time, um, it, does it really feel good to have things like that be a crime? I don't think so. Um, I, I do think that uh, this is a, a concern for us. Steven, I got a question for you. I'm going to take you way back in the day. Did you ever run folding at home on your computer or on all the computers at your computer lab? Why, yes. Yes, I did. Well, a lot of folks did. And that was because we originally looked at the idea of using the power of distributed computational systems to crack really hard mathematical problems. Folding at home was specifically designed to solve a problem with protein folding. Now, it turns out that the way that proteins fold themselves together is one of the secrets of life in organic chemistry that we really haven't been able to crack because it's super complicated. Well, guess what? We just figured it out. Um, DeepMind, which is a, an AI research company that was acquired by Google a while back, has announced that their AI system, which is called AlphaFold, has solved the protein folding problem. Now, it's not just like they flipped a switch overnight and they, it worked. They've been working on this pretty steadily for uh, about 10 or 15 years now. And the algorithm they had just a couple of years ago was close, but not quite there. Well, every two years they meet, and the last meeting was last week, and they nailed it. Um, the improvements that they added were more accurate, and they were able to predict the shapes that a branched amino acid would fold into. Um, that's a big deal. Now, to be fair, AlphaFold was not 100% accurate. However, its variances were less than the width of a single atom. I would say that's probably pretty close. 
Um, the hope is, is that if you're able to predict how a protein will fold up, that's going to assist in the things, you know, like developing medicines, because, you know, who would want to develop medicines faster? I don't know. Or solving some of these uncurable diseases that we've had, such as Alzheimer's disease, which is honestly something that's near and dear to my heart, given my family history for it. Stephen, looking at the breakthrough in the context of enterprise AI, because we always want to try to bring this back to the enterprise, does this signal that AI is really devoted to solving some very specific problems like this really hard math problem? Or does it mean that AI is actually better at solving distributed computing problems than we've been led to believe over the last few years, given the rise of the cloud and the fact that we're essentially using a giant distributed computing paradigm? Yeah, I'm no uh, scientist. Uh, also, uh, by the way, I'm not a lawyer about the Netflix password thing. Um, <laughs> but I will say that, um, you know, uh, I would bring a skeptical eye to any such announcement of a dramatic breakthrough. I mean, the example given in, uh, you know, this Vox article was, uh, you know, something that a, a scientist had been literally working on for years uh, got cracked in 30 minutes by this. Um, stuff like that really rings alarm bells for me. Um, you know, my concern really uh, focuses primarily around sort of the, you know, what exactly is it that DeepMind is doing here? Um, my, th my thought is that DeepMind is probably making some very educated guesses or deductions about how the proteins might fold based on, you know, what its neural network has seen in the past. And those educated guesses are probably pretty good. And in fact, they seem pretty good because um, the thing ACE, there's a standardized test of uh, protein folding. Um, the CASP, I think, is what it's called. And um, the thing scored the highest score ever um, on this, which is pretty cool because it did it quickly and it, uh, you know, and, and, and it looks pretty good. Um, that being said, uh, there's no telling whether that the results are actually correct or not. Um, it, just that it passed this test which is exactly what it was trained to do. So I'm not trying to say it's not good. I'm just trying to say, like all things, we should be skeptical of these, uh, of these announcements. Because as you said, turning back toward AI and the applications of AI, one of the big concerns that we've had and one of the things we've talked about on the Utilizing AI podcast was um, this whole idea that AI can, be, can do anything. Um, you know, one of the greatest terrible examples was, you know, let's have AI, like let's have GPT-3, which is this AI that writes text. Let's have GPT-3 write our support documents and, uh, you know, how-to instructions. And I'm just like, no, it doesn't know anything about anything. It's going to make convincing seeming instructions, but they're not like, like they don't actually say anything. Um, you know, you need somebody behind the wheel. AI is a co-pilot, not a pilot. And that's my biggest concern here is the fact that we're throwing more and more problems at AI that frankly need um, a, a very educated guiding hand to make sure that it's not just, you know, coming up with some crazy, crazy conclusion. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm worried. I'm really worried when I see things like this. And that was my reaction to this story. My, I just shook my head and thinking, okay, I'm sure that it's good, -er, but is it good? right? Is it right? Is it really getting us good results? Or is it just getting us convincing guesses? And um, I suspect that it's the latter. 
Yeah, I, I will say that uh, I watched an interesting uh, YouTube video uh, a couple weeks ago uh, from a series called Down the Rabbit Hole, uh, which is great, by the way. We'll link to the, the video in question here in the show notes, but it's uh, about Deep Blue, the uh, chess playing uh, AI that was developed by IBM and uh, how it was light years ahead of every chess playing computer that you've ever seen. And, and they tested it by putting it up against the best chess champion in the world, Gary Kasparov, years ago. Um, and it played mostly well until Gary started doing things that were questionable to the AI. And as soon as he broke out of the mold of here's the problem you're trying to solve and here's the best solution for it to I don't know what he's doing, the computer literally fell over. It could not figure out how to beat this guy because it was doing something outside of the bounds of its program. And I think that that maybe is the cautionary tale that we need to worry about here. Yes, you can train an AI to do something very specific and the results may look great, but AI can't do everything. And we still need to provide context to the AI to maybe, to maybe be able to help it work on a problem. Because if we break it out of those contexts, who knows what we're gonna get. Yeah. Well, and that being said, um, frankly, on the flip side of this, though, is if you look at Folding at Home and its ancestor, uh, pour one out for SETI at Home, which used the wonderful Arecibo telescope, which collapsed this week. Uh, um, if, you, if you look at what these things were doing, they were essentially just trying random guesses until they found one that fit. Um, AI is actually pretty good at not trying random guesses until they find one that fits. AI is really good at um, coming up with educated random guesses and seeing if they fit. And I think that this actually does have a, you know, kind of a bright side, which is essentially we could use um, machine learning to create better iterations of, find, you know, try everything and see if it fits kind of algorithms um, like protein folding. And I, and I like that idea. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to stay tuned for this because AI is one of those things that that's definitely, um, you know, kind of growing and changing. And luckily, Gestalt IT has you covered in the AI department. Stephen, uh, why don't you tell them a little bit about some of the AI stuff that you do with utilizing AI? Sure. Uh, well, we just had AI Field Day um, a couple of weeks ago, and I would definitely encourage you to check some of that stuff out. Um, and on the utilizing AI side, we are uh, publishing podcasts every Tuesday. Um, and um, they are pretty varied, but basically they all kind of take this same kind of skeptical real world tech. And so if you're uh, kind of nodding along with me thinking, yeah, AI is not good for everything. We got to start being a little skeptical about this. Yeah, check out the Utilizing AI podcast. I think you'll agree with what a lot of the things that we're saying. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. That should just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown for December 9th. Um, Stephen, it's a busy week for you. What have you got going on? Well, it's Tech Field Day week. So Tech Field Day is the bread and butter of Gestalt IT. And this is number 22 of the Tech Field Day series. Uh, you can tune in uh, basically uh, from 5 a.m. Eastern until you know 5 p.m. Pacific uh, for Tech Field Day presentations today, Wednesday. Uh, Thursday or Friday. And if you're listening to this after the fact, you'll find those presentations. Just go to youtube.com slash techfieldday or techfieldday.com. And you can find some presentations from, you know, some companies like the ones that we've talked about and, uh, you know, similar topics in the enterprise space. 
Outstanding. Um, and while Stephen's busy doing Tech Field Day, I'll be behind the scenes uh, working on some more great stories for our website at gestaltit.com. Uh, you can go over there and check out some of the things that I've been writing about, you know, some of the companies that we covered here in, in the rundown. You can also head over to our YouTube channel if you're not already there, youtube.com slash gestaltit video. Um, you can follow some of the podcasts that Stephen's been posting. All You can also follow our on-premise IT roundtable, my conversations, and uh, some other great things. Uh, we've got a lot of content that you're definitely going to want to be able to consume in the upcoming Christmas break because hopefully it's a change freeze December for you and you don't have anything to do. Maybe you could uh, catch up on some of the great stuff you might have missed from earlier in the year. Now, we will be back next week with some more great news stories from uh, the last minute buying spree that seems to be going on in enterprise IT tech um, and probably some more stories from uh, AWS reInvent since that seems to be the event that never stops. Um, but we will be back at the same time at 1230 Eastern time. So make sure you set your calendar for that and head over to Twitter and follow our uh, Twitter account at Gestalt IT where you can be updated on all the latest content that we're putting out. Uh, but for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for Mr. Stephen Foskett and the rest of the Gestalt IT uh, family, we bid you a fond good day and uh, we wish it to be super and sparkly. 